Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sun. In today's episode, we hear from researchers who want you to eat more insects, linguists reviving ancient languages for your new favourite Marvel movie, and we speak to a researcher that tested Cardi B's theory that a hoe never gets cold. But first, it was on this day in 1908 that Albert Einstein presented his quantum theory of light. From laser technology to television screens, there are many inventions that would have never been possible without this theory. In a new study from Israel, researchers believe they discovered the part of the brain responsible for psychosomatic illnesses. A psychosomatic illness originates from or is aggravated by emotional stress and manifests in the body as physical pain and other symptoms. You get a notification from your friend with whom you just went out for drinks last night, notifying you that she got COVID. It takes you about one minute until you start feeling the throat, some coughing and feel your body temperature rising. What caused it? Was it the text message? So we kind of dismiss it saying it's psychosomatic. It was, it's your brain who generated the disease. And this is exactly the question that we wanted to test in the lab. Is it possible that the brain can actually generate a disease? That's Professor Asya Rolls. The study was conducted by a group of researchers from the Technion Israel Institute of Technology. The focus of the study that was recently published in Cell was the insula cortex an area in the brain which is responsible for interoception, meaning generating a sense of the body's physiological state. And we postulated that it might also include information regarding the state of the immune system. Tamar Karen, a PhD student in the lab, led the research and shared the methodology. We captured groups of neurons in the insula that were active during gut inflammation. Once the mice recovered, we triggered these captured neurons artificially, and inflammation re-emerged in the exact same era where, where it was before. We also showed the opposite effect. In mice that went through inflammation, we suppressed the insular activity and showed that we can suppress the inflammatory response in the gut. They demonstrated that in the case of gut inflammation, the brain stores some kind of representation of inflammatory conditions and then has a way of later replaying those conditions to cause the same inflammation in the gut. The findings show there is indeed something to people being affected by psychosomatic illnesses, which are often associated with stomach ailments. It's believed that 5-7% to of the population are affected by these kind of illnesses, and if the brain has the power to cause inflammation in parts of a person's body, there's hope it could one day play a role in curbing the inflammation too. Although there is a huge gap between the discoveries in the lab and applications to human and therapeutic applications, but they also open new therapeutic avenue for treating different inflammatory conditions like irritable bowel disease or psoriasis, in which there are repeating episodes of the inflammatory condition. And we are usually treating these people with overall suppression of their immune system. But if we manipulate the brain, if we, for example, attenuate the activity in the insula, 
we can potentially suppress the inflammatory condition. Basically, let the brain do the job. With COP26 drawing to a close this week, we've all been forced to consider how our lifestyle choices impact the planet. Food production accounts for a quarter of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, and meat and dairy specifically accounts for around 14.5%. If the world is to meet its target of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, scientists say some degree of diet shift will be necessary, and maybe even crucial. Why not consider roasting some mealworms and adding them in your salad like you would, you know, toss some flax seeds into them because, you know, that's healthy. It also packs a crunch, which is quite tasty. This might sound like a strange question, but Dr. Indranil Chatterjee, a lecturer in consumer behaviour, wants you to eat more insects in a bid to help save the planet. Now, insects as an alternative to meat, we know the figures. The animals that we tend to eat are warm-blooded and a lot of what they eat is consumed just to keep warm, whereas insects are not. Um, the use of water, feed, the waste produced, the resource-saving potential is absolutely enormous. And that's why I feel we do need to be consuming more insects. I've been eating insects for about seven years now, so I am relatively quite desensitized to it. I can literally look at a tarantula or something quite big and, and quite happily you know, eat it. However, there are other ways of introducing insects to people's diets. It's very, very easy to simply replace, say, 25% of the flour that you used in a baked item, such as a chocolate cookie or a brownie, and just replace 25% of the flour with the insect flour. Whole crickets, you can buy them online, if you dry roast them, add some teriyaki, sesame, spring onion, and have that with rice, it just tastes like a really tasty Japanese meal. And why not consider roasting some mealworms and adding them in your salad like you would, you know, toss some flax seeds into them, because, you know, that's healthy. It also packs a crunch, which is quite tasty. Still to come on the Sunday 7, plastic-eating bacteria and how one company is trying to capture and recycle the energy of a sweaty night out. Plastic-eating bacteria cocktail has been developed by two Hungarian scientists and it could soon help to reduce global plastic pollution. It can consume any single-use plastic in seven weeks without any prior treatment or processing. The exact ingredients of the cocktail are top secret for now, but speaking with Reuters, CEO Liz Madara says she thinks that if it can be mass-produced, it could be a huge step in the global reduction of plastic waste. We saw plastic waste pollution as a very, very pertinent issue. So we, we decided to try to combine biotechnology and chemical engineering to create a media which can actually bring plastics back into the natural life cycle to which they once belonged. After two weeks, the process produces shreds of plastic. That then becomes a brown liquid sludge by the end of week seven, which is the end stage of the process. Initial lab tests show that the sludge is safe to use as a soil improver. It's kind of like composting, but with plastic. The degradation process is very similar to how those leaves uh, disappear from, from uh, autumn until springtime. Uh, a consortia of microbes 
biodegrades them. And this is what we're doing with our bacteria and fossil-based plastics. If it works on a large scale, it can make a global impact because the problem with plastics up until now was that they lingered on in the environment forever. But once we can biodegrade them, bring them back into the natural environment, they become part of nature again, become part of the global recycling system, not just the human one. Whilst there are other successful attempts to degrade plastic, this particular process degrades all types of plastic. There are successful uh, attempts with PET degradation though. But in our case, we do all types of plastics from resin identification one through seven. And that includes other plastics as well, such as multi-layer packaging or mixed plastic blend. We gotta do something with plastics. They don't belong in, in the environment the way they are right now. We can transform it into something which does belong in the environment. If it's not transformed, please don't put it into the environment. The company is now building their first industrial plant where they're testing the bacteria on a larger scale and experimenting with what it could do with other types of contaminants. Clubbers one day cool down a venue through their dance energy. Well, Glasgow nightclub SWG3 is hoping to do just that. They're set to trial technology that captures body heat from dancers and converts it into renewable energy to cool or heat the club. I do enjoy going out clubbing and that was probably one of the inspirations for understanding how much wasted energy uh, could be used from nightclubs. All this body heat is currently is left in the club and everyone gets too hot or it's dumped into the atmosphere via a kind of more conventional air conditioning system. That's David Townsend, founder of Town Rock Energy, the geothermal energy consultancy on a mission to unlock clean energy. He explained to the BBC how the tech works. It uses a heat pump and just about everyone has a heat pump in their house. It's called a fridge uh, and a fridge moves hot air uh, from the inside of the fridge to the back of the fridge. So we're using uh, a larger and more sophisticated type of heat pump uh, to essentially move hot air from the club into a series of boreholes which charge up uh, as a thermal battery. We're really excited to actually take this global. We would love for different clubs in different cities to start to compete to be the most green and see off the back of that how can they get more customers because the clubbing generation right now are very enlightened with regards to climate change and it will make a big difference for clubs to be able to say they're net zero. SWG3 is thought to be the first nightclub to trial this tech and should be ready to capture Reveler's body heat by 2022. David's certainly excited about the endeavour, but what about the club patrons? I think it's brilliant to be honest, like see the fact that we're in there dancing and they're like creating energy off it, it's brilliant. I mean hopefully it sets the president for other nightclubs to do the same and, and hopefully like everyone else will install the same technology. Like, Obviously, like it's a big investment, but like it'll be worth it in the long run. The power of dance. What more can you ask for? Still to come on the Sunday Seven, how one linguist revived an ancient language for Marvel's Eternals, and we speak to a scientist who put Cardi's theory that a home never gets cold to the test. Right after this. You're listening to the Sunday Seven. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places.
Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the Deviants. Marvel's Eternals follows a group of superhumans who are tasked with protecting Earth from an environmental threat. Released earlier this month, it's the first major film to feature characters speaking in the ancient language of Babylonian. I think it might have started with an email where somebody said, could you give me a telephone call about something you might be interested in? So I'm interested, uh, call them back. And then they explained they were making a film, they couldn't tell me what it was, and there was going to be some ancient languages in it, and was I interested in helping out? So of course I said yes. That's Dr. Martin Worthington, an expert in the languages and civilizations of Mesopotamia, including those of the Babylonians. Ancient Babylonian was the language of the people who once lived in what is now Iraq, and it vanished around 2,000 years ago. But now Martin's helped revive it for the purpose of the film. Martin provided written translations and audio recordings which the actors rehearsed with a dialect coach. My understanding is that the film operates on multiple time planes and because one of these time planes is ancient Mesopotamia, they wanted to include the original language to make it more authentic and in a sense more intellectually exciting to really immerse the viewer in this world of antiquity, to make it interestingly different from our present lived experience. And so they turned to someone who works in that line of business and that's where I came in. As exciting an opportunity as this was, there were some challenges bringing an ancient language into the modern world. What was really difficult is when they wanted real-life dialogue, I don't know, pass the salt over here. Oh my goodness, uh, that's not the kind of things that cuneiform tablets normally say, because they're formal letters, they're administered records, they're stories, they're not records of real-life conversations. So there were a couple of occasions where people wanted to say thank you. Now famously, Babylonian and doesn't actually have a word for thank you. Um, so I had to think, well, what people would have done as an expression of gratitude. And so sometimes I said, I'm happy, because that seemed the logical thing to do in context. And sometimes I said, may the gods um, bless you. Uh, yes, no Babylonians are alive today to correct me. So we'll see what my colleagues say and um, hope for the best. Still, this is a major first for a language that hasn't been spoken since 500 BC. Well, I think it's extraordinary that this film has decided to go out and use an ancient language for real. It's the first major film, so far as I know, that's ever done that, ever. Um, so it's a film which is breaking ground, and hey, they decided to break ground by bringing in some ancient authenticity, so that's fantastic. Israeli startups develop balloons that have the power to catch carbon in the air, helping to reduce global warming. It was developed by Israeli startup High Hope Labs. CEO and founder Nadav Mansdorf walks us through how this new balloon will work. The beautiful thing is that capturing gas is very easy when it's close to freezing temperature. So imagine when you wake up in the morning, in a winter morning, and you see a layer of, of thin ice on the leaves and it's very easy to capture. The same thing is with the carbon. Carbon is freezing in minus 80 degrees. And the only place that we can find carbon in temperature close to that is 50 kilometers above our head. And while we're getting there with, uh, with balloon, uh, we can grasp, we can capture the, the, the carbon much more easily and without, with much less efforts and uh, process. The payload go, go up with a balloon, connected to a balloon. The air goes through the, the payload and 
in the middle of the payload, imagine some kind of freezer that capture only the carbon. Then it fills the can, get it down and repeat repeatedly every day. The frozen carbon's then separated from the air to be brought back to earth and recycled. The company aims to build larger balloons within a couple of years that could remove a ton of carbon a day. Without carbon capture direct from the air, all the climate events we saw on the last few years of fires and floods and other disasters will increase and be more painful. Temperatures in the UK are dipping as we head towards winter, which for most people means wearing a jacket or a coat is an absolute must. However, some women on a night out prefer to ditch their outerwear and brave the icy winter weather instead. As Cardi B famously declared in a viral Vine video, It's cold outside, but I'm still looking like a daddy because my home never gets cold. And it turns out she may have been onto something, actually. According to a study published in the British Journal of Social Psychology, there is science to back up why some scantily clad women don't seem to feel the cold. My name is Roxanne Felig. I'm a fourth year PhD student at the University of South Florida. Broadly, I study gender dynamics and how gender dynamics affect women. So processes like sexism and sexual objectification and how these contribute to women's self-perceptions. Based on the idea of objectification theory, Roxanne and her colleagues put Cardi's saying to the test. My other colleague, Jessica Jordan, and my advisor, Jamie Goldenberg, were the ones who considered that this relationship between objectification and body awareness might explain the common saying that was popularized by Cardi B, a hoe never gets cold, which refers to this really publicly observed phenomenon of women appearing to be underdressed for cold weather, but also appearing to be unbothered by the cold temperatures. We surveyed female participants over five weekend nights. I believe it was just Friday and Saturday nights. We had a very brief one-page, one-sided survey asking them questions to assess their typical level of self-objectification, asking them to indicate how cold they felt, how many drinks they had consumed, how intoxicated they felt, some other variables that we thought might influence their relationship. And so after we took their photos, you know, we thanked them for their time. And we later went back and coded each of those photos that we took for amount of skin exposure to test for this relationship between skin exposure and feeling cold. And what they found seems to confirm what Cardi's been saying all along. The main finding of this is that women who are more highly focused on their appearance, so women who are more likely to take an outsider's perspective of their body, showed no relationship between how little clothing they were wearing and how cold they reported feeling on a cold night. So these findings suggest that to the extent that women take this outsider's perspective of their body, they increasingly lose access to their physical experiences. And as you might have gathered already, these results are a little troubling, and Roxanne thinks so too. Given the fact that we were surveying women who were in line waiting to, to go into nightclubs and bars, where risk for sexual assault, risk for being slipped some type of date rape drug are increased. Oftentimes, date rape drugs, um, the side effects include things like delayed heart rate. If women are unable to recognize that they're feeling cold or if they're unable to recognize their heart rate, they may be unable to recognize these physiological cues that are meant to keep them safe. But that's not to say that self-objectification is all bad. You know, objectification can be beneficial to women. It allows women to anticipate how they're going to be viewed by others. It allows them to, you know, kind of modify their appearance to be in line with cultural ideals. 
oftentimes when women adhere to strict beauty standards, they're praised for it. And, you know, beautiful is seen as good. So women who self-objectify likely kind of have some type of social, social currency that they can use. Um, I'm not sure if the disconnect from body states can, can be justified as evolutionarily beneficial, um, but it's definitely something interesting to consider. As for Cardi herself, what does she think of all this? So she actually retweeted the TikTok video that I posted. I haven't heard from her directly, but I do know that she's seen it. And I don't know if her retweet was an endorsement of the study. She didn't add any any context or any of her thoughts, but she's definitely seen it. This has been The Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.